Well, good morning. Uh, on the 10th day of the month of April, in the year 1912, British shipping company White Star Line launched the second of its three, three Olympic-class ocean liners on its maiden voyage. Set to arrive in New York City only eight days later, the Titanic's trip was cut tragically short. At 11.40 p.m., April 14th, the ship struck an iceberg that tore a gaping hole into its side. Two hours and 40 minutes later, the Titanic sank in the ocean waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. Of the 2,224 documented people on board, over 1,500 did not survive. This horrible tragedy changed the world. New safety measures uh, were set up to prevent such a catastrophe from ever happening again. At the time, the Titanic was considered unsinkable. Now imagine that you had been a passenger on the ship that fateful night. When you boarded four days earlier, you surely believed that the ship was unsinkable. When you purchased your boarding pass, your tickets, you believed the ship was unsinkable. And yet here you are, the ship has struck the iceberg, and it certainly seems like it's sinking. What would you have done? Would you have stood around and insisted with people, go back to your beds, everybody calm down, this is fine, the ship is not sinking, sinking ships are history, that's a thing of the past, we don't need to worry about that, we've been told there is no way this ship is going to go down. It's not possible, just calm down, we're going to get through the night, it'll be okay. I hope not, that would have been a horrible, horrible tragedy. Instead, I would hope that you would look around and quickly abandon your belief that the ship was unsinkable because you were watching it sink. Just like people on board the Titanic were told that sinking ships were history, you have probably, probably been told that resurrections are history. They're a thing of the past. They're impossible. They reflect an old, outdated, ignorant way of looking at the world. But sinking ships weren't history. Instead, a sinking ship made history. And this morning, I'm asking you if the resurrection is history, an old story that we've outgrown, an old way of thinking that doesn't matter anymore, or is it history? A real event in a real place with real people that makes all the difference in the world. Is the resurrection history, or is it history. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for Sunday mornings. Um, Thank you that we are here today um, with a foregone conclusion about this sermon. Uh, for, for, For many of us, we're walking in here, we are convinced of the resurrection. That's why we're here, that's why we're celebrating, worshiping on a Sunday morning, because we believe it was on a Sunday morning. We know it was on a Sunday morning um, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and and brought victory over death and assured us of forgiveness of sins and uh, childhood with our Father in heaven. Um, So thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. I pray for uh, this congregation that uh, the different people, as we've walked in here with uh, different 
weights, <laughs> different uh, things on our hearts, on our minds, on our plates, uh, that you would speak through me and speak through your word uh, and meet us where we're at, wherever that might be, across a wide spectrum. And I pray that you would, again, speak through me, God, that you would be glorified, that you'd be magnified, and that we would leave this place more sure of our faith, more sure of who you are, your character, what you have done for us, and um, that that confidence would turn itself outward as we go about our lives, whether it's at home, uh, work, school, wherever we find ourselves, um, that we would bring you honor and glory. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. If the resurrection is history, into the past, something we don't need to worry about anymore, it's outdated, then Christianity is a pitiable, contemptible sham. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14. And then we're going to read verses 17 and 19, so we're jumping a little bit there. Verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Down to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then verse 19. If if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. How much would your life change if you woke up one day... And no longer believed in the resurrection. Perhaps you've heard of Pascal's wager. Maybe not by name, but you may have heard this argument offered. It's an argument for God uh, or belief in God. And it goes like this. It says, it's better to believe in God and be wrong than to not believe in God and be wrong. So you should probably just believe in God. Because if you believe in God and there is no God, oh well. You just die and that's that. Fade to black, curtains close, it's all over, the end. But if you don't believe in God and you're wrong, well, you could end up facing something like eternal judgment. Belief in God, at least according to this line of thinking, is essentially a nice insurance policy. Protecting you from eternal doom, you know, just in case that kind of thing might happen to you. But Paul doesn't approach Christianity that way at all here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, "Eh, if the resurrection isn't real, oh well, at least I lived a good life. No, he says, if the resurrection isn't real, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why? Well, think about what it means to live as a Christian You die to yourself. You deny yourself. You carry your cross. You wrestle against your flesh and against sin. Paul himself, in his letter to the Philippians, it's Philippians 3, 8, he says this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, if Christ has not been raised, if the, if the resurrection didn't happen, then what is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? He died just like any other man. He dies like any other man who had been crucified, condemned, cursed, hated by the gods. 
If the resurrection didn't happen, then you can't gain Christ because he's dead, buried in the ground. And what have you done? What had Paul done? He, he lost everything and would have gained nothing. Denying yourself in the hope of eternal, of eternal reward is a fool's errand if Christ has not been raised. If your life wouldn't change if the resurrection were found to be false, you're not doing it right. See, if the resurrection didn't happen, then why bother with any of this? If the Bible is wrong about the resurrection, then why listen to what it says about sin or God or marriage or sexuality or creation? Who cares? Who cares? Without the resurrection, Christianity becomes a spiritual Ponzi scheme. You're investing in something that will inevitably collapse. It cannot give you the returns it promises, and your best bet would be to run away as fast as you can. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15 later on in verse 32, if you drop down to that. It says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, forget all this Christianity stuff, forget all these rules, forget all this. Eat and drink, be merry, be happy, find fulfillment the best you can now. Don't work for the future, don't work for eternal hope. There's, there isn't one coming. Make the most of your life now. See, the resurrection is vital to Christianity. But can you know, can you know whether it's world-changing history or leave it behind in dusty old books history? Did it really happen? Did the resurrection really happen or is it just a nice story that gives us a, a pleasant way of looking at and coping with the world? See, some people have suggested just that. Christianity is a fanciful story made up by people who like Jesus' teaching, but then took Jesus further than he himself ever went and turned him into a crippled, healing, crowd-feeding, death-defeating God. But that's not what happened. The earliest Christians preached the resurrection as real, matter-of-fact history. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, turn to Acts 2. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I encourage you to pull a Bible out from under the seat in front of you. Um, for the sake of time, we're not going to read Acts 2, but I'm going to move through it, and I think it'll be helpful for you to follow along so you know I'm not just making this stuff up up here. In Acts 2, we have the very first Christian sermon ever preached, and it turns on the resurrection. The speaker is the Apostle Peter. The place was Jerusalem, and the occasion was Pentecost, a Jewish holiday that saw thousands and thousands of Jews travel to Jerusalem from all over the known world. It was 50 days after the Passover, which means, if you're familiar with the Bible story, it was 50 days after the crucifixion, which took place at Passover. And depending on how you do your math, it was only one week since Jesus had ascended into heaven. So this is very early in the Christian or in the history of Christianity. The Holy Spirit is poured out just as Christ has promised. And the 12 apostles begin proclaiming the works of God in the native languages of all of Jerusalem's visitors. And so the apostle Peter, as first among equals, he gets up and he speaks on behalf of the 12. He mentions an Old Testament prophecy from Joel and says that God is fulfilling these prophecies right now in front of you because Jesus through his death, and more importantly, his resurrection, 
has brought about the last days. Beginning in verse 24 and then working itself through the rest of the sermon in verse 36, Peter is building upon the resurrection of Christ. He's saying, here's where this comes from. Here's why this had to happen. And he's arguing, making his case for the resurrection. In verse 32, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Their witness wasn't about the nice things that Jesus had done in their hearts. Their witness wasn't about Jesus living inside of them or or making them feel happy. Their witness was an eyewitness account of what they had seen, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. For some, maybe many of you, this is great and convincing. Uh, Not that you, like I mentioned earlier, not that you needed convincing. Uh, Your approach to the Bible is the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And praise God for those of you who can do that. But that approach isn't satisfying for everyone. Maybe you question the reliability of the Bible. It says some things that you can't quite figure out. And it says some other things that you just can't stomach. You don't want the Bible to be authoritative, inspired, God's word, because there are parts you don't like. And you don't want a God who says and does those kinds of things. If you struggle with accepting the authority of God's word, the Bible, see, we can still make this work. We can still make this work. And I can still use my Bible to do it, to prove, to show you, to demonstrate that the resurrection is history. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you can, and look at the beginning of the chapter, starting at the beginning, verse 1. But before getting into the passage itself, I have to tell you why we can still use this, even if you don't believe The Bible is the supernatural word of God, even if you are skeptical and questioning. First, we know that Paul was a real person. We know this. This is as sure as any other fact of history. We know Paul was a real person. Second, we know Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Again, this is as sure as any fact in history. Third, we know that Paul was both smart and sincere. We know he's smart. Because we've seen other things he's written, like the book of Romans. He's a smart guy. And we know he's sincere because his life changed dramatically as a result of his conversion. Of course, being smart and being sincere doesn't make a person right. But it does mean that Paul, the smart and sincere convert, really, truly did believe what he was saying. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7. It says, Now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This passage, particularly where it picks up in verse 3, shows signs of being an early creed or a confessional statement, meaning this was a statement of belief in the early church. It was meant to be easily memorized and easily repeated. 
In fact, if you're looking, the words delivered and received support this idea. You, you might not notice this. I certainly didn't until I had someone point it out to me. But delivered and received was a way of talking about teachings in Judaism that were intended to be memorized. They were intended to be passed down. You would deliver and receive these sayings as a matter of instruction, particularly in relation to the synagogue and religion. Second, another fact about this that makes us believe that this was a very early statement of belief, a summary of belief for the early Christians, is that there's a, there's a rhythm to it that goes with that memorization idea. Uh, you can sense it a little in the English, the, the repetitive sounds, the repeated words, uh, but apparently, I'm not smart enough to, to do this on my own, but in the original Greek, it sounds a whole lot better. Paul, before beginning his ministry, had received this confessional statement. He had received this at the beginning of his ministry. And the best and the brightest of skeptics, atheists, agnostics, people who don't believe that the Bible is God's word, that don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that don't believe in supernatural anything, the best and brightest skeptics say that we can safely date this creed, this confession that Paul writes here, to two, within two years of the crucifixion. Within two years of the crucifixion, a man who does not believe in God at all is saying, yes, within 24 months, we can say that they were, this is what they were teaching. This is what they were going around and saying. And it wasn't just Paul, but it was all of the apostles. According to verse 11, it says, all of the apostles were preaching this very same message as eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've dismissed the suggestion that Christianity was invented long after the real Jesus had lived by showing that the earliest Christians believed that they had seen the risen Christ. But how do we know all these people weren't just duped? How can we be sure that they hadn't misunderstood what they saw? Surely a resurrection can't happen. They just were confused, those poor ancient Israelites. Well, for starters... The disciples weren't anticipating a resurrection. In Luke 24, you'll find the story of the road to Emmaus. Jesus, having risen from the dead, appears to two unnamed disciples who are leaving Jerusalem. And they're talking about all that had transpired. And and Luke says they were looking sad. He includes this detail. They looked sad. And so Jesus conceals his identity, he approaches them and starts talking to them, saying, what are you talking about? What's going on? And, and they say some snide remark like, are you the only person that doesn't know? Like, Jesus was here, he was doing all these great things, but they killed him. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. In fact, some women went to his grave, and it was empty, and they said he's alive. Did they believe that? No. They were leaving Jerusalem looking sad. They had been told by these women that the tomb was empty, that Jesus was alive. And they were were walking away from Jerusalem, leaving it behind, not because they were expecting a resurrection, but because they they didn't believe it. See, see, so we've come to a point, right, where we have this idea that these ancient people were ignorant. But again, they, they weren't looking or ready to invent the resurrection. They were not expecting it. Um, not only were they not expecting it, but, 
the resurrection was not a widely held idea, a widely held belief. The ancient society was more accepting of ghosts and spirits and similar visions, but, but not resurrection. So they had no reason to make this up. In Acts 12, Peter has been arrested for being a Christian. God intervenes and miraculously delivers him from his bondage. And we re- he returns to the disciples under the cover of night, and he's met at the gate by a servant girl. In disbelief, she leaves Peter at the gate. She runs back to the disciples and says, it's Peter. It's Peter. He's here. But the disciples, not only do they not believe it's Peter, they believe it's more reasonable to suggest that it's Peter's angel. They, were, they thought it was more reasonable that Peter's angel had appeared and that he had escaped prison or that it was the resurrected Peter. In Acts 17, Paul preaches a resurrection-centered sermon. And upon mentioning the resurrection... He's mocked. He's mocked by the people. See, the resurrection wasn't something that those ancient yokels fell for because they didn't know better. The resurrection was strange even for those who accepted it. Now, some have taken this and, well, okay, the resurrection, yeah, they, they knew what they were talking about. They would have known if it was a body or a ghost. Well, then Jesus must not have died. He, he didn't actually die on the cross. Instead, he had just drawn really close to death. He looked like he was dead. Uh, but he hadn't died. Well, if you're familiar at all with the brutality of the crucifixion, you know that that is ridiculous. Jesus was whipped, hung on a cross, stabbed with a spear, and he survived. And then three days later, he rolled the stone away, overcame the guards, and convinced hundreds and hundreds of people that he had resurrected in glory. That explanation to me seems as miraculous as the resurrection itself. See, the ancient world was not eager to accept the story of a resurrection, and yet the earliest message of Christianity was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter died for this message. So did James. So did Paul. And many more would eventually give up their lives for the gospel, absolutely convinced that they had seen the risen Christ, absolutely convinced of the resurrection. So really the last remaining argument, I suppose, against the resurrection is is simply this. I don't know what to tell you, but resurrections, they just don't happen. They're impossible. To which I say that's an awful lot, like standing on the sinking Titanic and insisting that the ship can't sink. Sure, the Titanic won't sink just as long as you don't think there are any football field-sized icebergs lurking in the ocean. And sure, resurrections are impossible, just as long as there isn't anything beyond this world, nothing supernatural, no God above us. But that's just the point. That's the point. In order for us to accept the resurrection as history, we have to accept that there is something supernatural at work in the world. If you don't believe in miracles, if you think that science can explain everything, that the material world is all there is, then you have to explain away the church's foundation that Jesus Christ, as a matter of history, truly rose from the dead. You can't say he never lived because the best skeptics agree he lived. You can't say he never died because the best skeptics say he died and he died on a cross. You can't say his body was found, because that would have put an end to this whole thing a long time ago. You can't say the original disciples were naive. They weren't expecting a resurrection any more than the next guy, maybe even less. You can't say the resurrection was added later to the Jesus story, because they really liked the guy and they thought it might be nice. And so it boils down to this. 
Is there a God or is there not? Could the Titanic sink? History says yes. Eyewitnesses confirm that yes, the Titanic could and did tragically sink. So is the resurrection history or history? Every Sunday that we gather, we are bearing witness to the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are no longer eyewitnesses, but we trust in the eyewitness accounts that have been passed down to us. We, together and as individuals, testify that there is a God at work in the world who can bend the so-called laws of nature to his will, and he has done that very thing in order to offer forgiveness an eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. If you feel discouraged this morning, cling to the resurrection. Your faith does not need to be built upon your emotions or even your experience. Faith may have been offered to you as God's love and wonderful plan for your life, and those statements are not wrong. But maybe you're in the midst of a storm and life doesn't feel wonderful at all. And the night is so dark and so long, you can't seem to see God's love anywhere. Has Christ still been raised? Is the resurrection still firmly fixed in history? Then hold on to hope. Or maybe, maybe you're wrestling with doubts. Science has called the Bible and your faith into question. New and evolving cultural norms about gender and sexuality have, have you confused. There are, a good, there are people, good people, who disagree with the Bible. There are smart people who disagree with the Bible. And so can you really believe in the God of the Bible when he condemns these things, when he condemns these good people? Can you trust the Bible when it's been undermined By science. Has Christ still been raised? Is the resurrection still firmly fixed in history? Then don't let go because science or changing cultural tides. If you're forced to choose, then you have to cling to the resurrection. Your science and your culture have to make sense of that historical fact. If you would look with me at Mark Two. We're going to look at Mark 2 uh, as we wind down this morning. Beginning in verse 5, uh, we read this. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Then down to verse 9, going through verse 12. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. In this story, four men have brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus They remove the roof from the building Jesus is in, lower him down in order for Jesus to help him. But rather than healing the man, at least immediately, Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins. And there were some in the crowd who who rightly understood what was happening. Jesus, in this moment, was claiming to be equal with God. For only God can forgive sins. 
And so Jesus asks a question, a wonderful question. He says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, don't don't overthink this. It's, it's really a pretty easy question. It's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say, rise, get up and walk. You can't see the forgiveness of sins. There's no way for you to really know, for you to prove whether I can forgive your sins or not. But if I say to a a crippled, paralyzed man, rise, get up and walk, and he doesn't rise and get up and walk, people are going to know pretty quickly that I'm faking. The power of Jesus' healing of this man is meant to demonstrate, to prove that he can also, that he is also powerful to forgive sins. And so it is with the gospel. Which is easier to say, God loves you and has forgiven your sins and adopted you as a child, or God raised Jesus from the dead, therefore repent and believe. It's much easier to say God loves you and has forgiven your sins and adopted you as a child. And there's nothing untrue at all about that statement. It is great news. As, but as you look at it, it's, it's much more difficult to say Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, repent and believe. But in order that we might believe, that we might know, that we might trust that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, that he will forgive those who trust in him, and he will condemn those who have rejected God. God has raised Jesus from the dead. The best explanation for what happened to Jesus of Nazareth is that he was raised from the dead. And if that's the case, something supernatural is at work. There is a God, and he has revealed himself to us in history In the person and work of Jesus Christ. That cannot change. It's set in stone. There is nothing that can go back and change what has already happened. To come what may, storm, sunny sky, a mountaintop meeting with God, or a walk through the shadow of the valley of death. Rich or poor, we can confess with Paul and the earliest Christians that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to many After his resurrection. Not because it feels good to say. Although it might. Not because it always makes the most sense. Because it won't. We can say that. We can affirm that. Because it happened. It really did happen. The resurrection is history. Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you that in this world you have not left us to ourselves, um, that you have not given us a system uh, of, of logic and philosophy and thinking that we have to be smart enough to figure out for ourselves. God, there certainly is that. There is that aspect of studying and knowing you and finding beauty and finding rich truth uh, as we go deeper into those things, into our theology and our, our study of you. But also, Lord, you've given us a simple, simple task to believe what has been seen, that Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead, that it really did happen, and that if it happened, 
then he becomes a very important person that we really need to pay special attention to. Lord, I pray for um, people here this morning, um, that hearing this message, that maybe, maybe, God, it is old news. And maybe in that way it's good that it's old news, that, that many, if not all, everybody in here has heard that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. But, Lord, I just pray that you would help us in our hearts and our minds and in our lives uh, move that away from just a, a nice feeling or a nice story that we tell ourselves, but, but to truly believe that that's a real thing that happened in this world. That in this world, when, when we suffer, when we face uh, hatred for our faith, when we suffer for good and for the sake of your honor and glory, um, we're not very far removed from what took place with your son who truly did live, truly lived perfectly, honoring you in all things, and was truly raised to life. And that we have the wonderful hope of the resurrection to look forward to. Um, God, I pray that as we go, that, again, our faith would be made sure. Uh, Not that it's a a blind leap in the dark. Not that it's things that we, we just can't know. But, God, that we have good reason, very, very good reason, to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen.